Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. Our guest today is Paul Tuff, author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes Us or Breaks Us. This book came out this fall, and it's a must-read if you have kids just about to embark on the college process. But before we get to our conversation with Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about our own experiences with the college process. I've gone through it five times. You've gone, Stephanie's gone through it twice, and starting on the third? Yeah, I have a junior. Yeah. It is true. So Paul Tuff's book really did change the way I view college, but I will say I had an experience several years ago when we ran a program at one of the local schools. For the first time doing this program, we had a track for students, and so they got to hear from admissions officers from a local college, and they had an exercise that the admissions team put together. So what happened was about 10 kids got like a note card saying who they were in the admissions process, and they stood in line, and the admissions officer called out certain criteria, like if you play the trumpet, move to the front of the line. So the person with the the bio that said, I play the trumpet, move to the front of the line. And then if you have a perfect SAT score, move to the front of the line. And there were all these criteria, which presumably are based on what the university is looking for. Like, what's your score? This year we need a trumpet player. All of those things that we already knew about. But the last question was, if your name ends in, we'll say, Smith, move to the front of the line and stay there. And so they described that Smith was the name of the student center. There had been a big donation by Family Smith. And the kids in the room gasped. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, that's how this goes down? And so I kind of feel like reading Paul Tuff's book was that moment for me, where even though I understood, like, the building name for Smith, that kid or grandkid gets in, that kind of system plays out when it comes to college for all of our kids. It was really a rude awakening for me. I don't know what I would do differently if I had college admissions to do over, but I feel a little uncomfortable with the way we contributed to the game that goes on right now for access and opportunity. And I don't, you know, it's just it's just something to consider because I can't really undo it. It's funny, Sue. I re- I think back to that moment often in that room and that gasp. It's a wake-up call, right, that this system is not maybe what you thought it was. And I remember having that conversation with each kid, and I've just recently had it with the, the junior. We were sitting around the table, and something came up. I had a friend over, and she was talking about a kid who had transferred from a school, and she was saying, well, she didn't want to go to X school in the beginning because she never got into whatever her dream school was. And my friend's follow-up comment was, well, it didn't make a lot of sense because she had the criteria. And my daughter said, what, wait, what do you mean by that? And I said, oh, well, she had all the grades and everything else they were looking for in test scores to get in. And Lane said, wait, so, that, so you, you can have it all, like all the things they're looking for and not get in? And I thought, wow, like this is such a great conversation because yes, that's, it, it, there is this unfairness, this randomness, this maybe not so random in the case of the, the Smith Library and that's your family. And I think in some ways, I have competing feelings. I have the feeling of it feeling really icky. Not icky because I've been the victim of icky, but I fit into the icky story because we've been able to tutor. We've been able to do things for our kids. But this other side that I think is, you know what? There is a randomness to it, and you're going to do you. 
And so that also means we're not going to guide her toward like, oh, dream school and all. Like, I don't know. It brings a dose of reality to it in a good way, too. I well, don't know if I'm articulating not, it well at all. So it's it's not a merit <laughs> system. It's not a merit-based yes. system. So that's a shock to find out. Those kids found it out in that room. I found it out. Even though I knew, I found it out in a jarring way in the book. But I also have this other feeling that there's these parallel lives that we live. And one of them is, what do I want for my kids? And then what do, one of them is, what do I want for society? And it's really hard to separate those two things. And I'm done with the process. So I can think about it in all the glorious ways I want to, but I'm not really going to be tested. If my kid can get what they want, do I move forward with that goal and take all of the advantages that we can put in front of our kids and also feel on the other side of that path that the system is wrong in allowing me to do that. I don't have an answer for it, and I won't be tested, but the book really challenged me on that count. Like, who would I be in the story today after reading this book, and would I say to my kid, you know, do the best you can. Be like everybody else and do the best you can, and then whatever it is, it's going to be great. There's a spotlight on the college process right now and everything going on in higher ed. And I will say, I, while some of the conversations make me cringe, I'm glad we're having the conversations, if that makes sense. Well, there's a lot of discussion about test optional and no testing and all of those schools, which the conversation sounds really optimistic. And then someone writes an article, which I read yesterday, that is about how if you only look at GPAs, you're going to be continuing this line of privilege because who has more opportunity in schools and where is there more grade inflation and whose parents are going in to fight for the B-plus turning into the A-minus or an extra chance to take the test or... Making this process fair, is it really possible? And does that actually mean we don't have to keep trying? I think both you and I would say, of course not, we have to keep trying. But on a personal note, it's it's a tougher question. Like, what do you do when your kid is faced with the opportunities and the decisions? And what do you do in your emotional feeling of like, I want the world to be more fair? Yeah. And I think there's also another question out there, and it is, and it speaks to what we do for a living in terms of parenting, which is what is your long game or your end game? And I think there has been, and certainly we've seen it, uh, you know, what's been going on in the news in college admissions and what the choices some parents have made with that that are not so lawful. If your end game is a longer horizon than what college you get into, I think it allows you to open up your mind and think about what do you want for the child that's sitting in front of you, which is something we talk about a lot, is, you know, focusing on the kid you have in front of you, not the kid you wish you had, not the kid that your neighbor has, but the kid who's in front of you, you know, and what what's going to be in their best interest. It is, like, to me, the biggest thing we live with all the time are, like, these two competing problems that we have, like— Are we only about our families and our children? And what does that look like? And then are we also about a broader sense of being part of a community, just even a local one or a broader one or a humankind? And what does that look like? So, you know, I I have no answer. Obviously, if if we had answers to this, we would be outside of this problem right now. But it's a really, really tough one to think about. On that really uplifting note... We are going to talk to Paul Tuff, who highlights really how challenging the problem is. He does have some solutions, and I'm not sure where I would have fallen in his suggestions. So we're going to hear from him. Hopefully everybody runs out and gets the book and finds the interview entirely fascinating. 
Tuff's most recent book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, tells the stories of students trying to find their way with hope, joy, and frustration through the application process and into college. Tuff's a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, where he has written extensively about education, parenting, poverty, and politics. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and Esquire, and on the op-ed page of The New York Times. Tuff is a speaker on topics including education, parenting, equity, and student success. Thanks so much for being with us, Paul. Thank you. Great to be here. So we're going to start with a question about you. Before we delve into all of the findings from your book, can you tell us a little bit about your own college experience and why you decided to leave it out of this particular book? Yeah, my own college experience was a little bit rocky. And uh, so I wrote about it in a previous book, but didn't write about it in this one. I went right to college after high school. I went to Columbia University in New York. I grew up in, in Canada and Toronto. So it was a bit of a leap for me coming to the States and coming to New York. And then after a little more than a semester, I dropped out and did some biking around the, the American South a very non-academic few months. Uh, And then I went back to school at McGill University in Montreal, which was a little cheaper for a Canadian like me. Stayed there for a couple of years until I was just a year away from graduation and then dropped out again. I did an internship at Harper's Magazine back in New York, and I had never really loved college. It was always sort of okay, but I never loved it. And when I got to Harper's and started this internship, I found like everything that I'd been looking for in college, I suddenly found it was this exciting intellectual experience and actual, you know, work that was reaching people. And that felt like the right place for me to be. So I never went back, never got my BA. So that's a story that lots and lots of kids want to hear. First of all, you didn't add it into the book. And second of all, what would you say to those kids? So one of the reasons that I didn't add it in the book is because I think a lot of kids want to hear it, right? They want to think that there are lots of paths to a successful career without college. And and my sense is that I was a real outlier and that it has something to do with the era that I was in. I think I got lucky in lots of ways. I think, you know, being a white male was, was not irrelevant to my ability to start this career without a degree. But in journalism, even then, but especially now, three decades later, there are very, very few people who go into journalism without a BA. And so I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't, I didn't emphasize it because I don't want to send the message that, uh, that it's, it's easy to go into a career without a BA. Because I think when I look at the data, it's really clear that it's not, it's super hard. So here's another thing that I would like to believe. And I think a lot of parents would like to believe that where you go to college does not define who you're going to be. In fact, Frank Bruni wrote a book about that. But your your data in your book suggests otherwise. So can you give us a little insight into what you unearthed? Sure. So, I mean, I'm very, very sympathetic to Frank's point of view, and I love his book. And I do think for any individual student, especially students who are coming from, you know, well-off affluent families with educated parents, the specific choice for any individual student of where they go to college is not going to determine the rest of their lives. I mean, I do think that those years after high school matter a whole lot to every young person. But I think it's also true that individual choices are, are different for each individual person. There is such a thing as a, as a right fit and a wrong fit at different institutions. But when you look at the aggregate data of, of uh, higher education as a whole, of America's colleges and universities, there's really clear data 
that economists just over the last few years have have made more precise and more public that there's a big difference in in terms of what kind of education you get, what kind of outcome you get at different selectivity tiers. In other words, when you go to a college that is in that most selective tier, that institution is going to spend much more on you as a student than any other institution. And on average, your lifetime earnings are going to be higher. So that matters. And I think that it's important for us to keep it in mind, not only as parents, but as as citizens, as Americans, that the system of education has become much more so than it was in the past, very stratified, so that there are real differences between the different tiers and what kind of investment those institutions are making in you. And the reason why I think it's important, again, not not you know from the point of view of any given student or parent, but from the point of view of the country as a whole, is because there are huge variations in terms of, of who goes where. At the most selective institutions, the student bodies today are made up almost entirely of affluent students, students from the top economic quintile. And it is increasingly difficult for students from the bottom economic quintile, from families who are struggling financially, to make it to those institutions. That's a piece of information that we aren't hearing in the media in general. My perception before I read your book was that there was much more equity than what you're indicating. Yeah, I think those institutions, you know, make a practice of emphasizing anything they do in the in the direction of equity, and I think that's a good thing that they care about it, that they realize that uh, that the rest of us care about it. But yeah, when you look at the economic data, there's just no question about it that those most selective institutions are highly imbalanced. They have a a student population that is full of well-off kids and has very few really low-income kids. Can we put a number that I think you mentioned in your book about the low to highs being spent in schools? Because the disparity is so shocking. Yeah, so this is data from an economist named Carolyn Hawksby at Stanford. And she found that, you know, a few decades ago, there wasn't that much of a disparity. So the the lowest uh, the sort of open access colleges that weren't spending a whole lot on their students were spending four or $5,000 per student. Per student, and the most exclusive, most prestigious colleges were spending, you know, like twenty thousand dollars per student per year. Now, the less selective institutions are still spending the same amount, and the most selective institutions are spending a hundred thousand, one hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars per student per year. But what was so striking to me about that is that you know we're at this moment where we spend so much time being anxious about high tuitions, and we should; they they are extremely high. But at you know Ivy League colleges and similar institutions, each institution is losing money on on every student that they admit each year. Their calculation is that that investment is going to pay off, that these students they're educating who are mostly coming from affluent families are down the road going to be rich people, rich alumni who are going to pay them back with huge alumni donations. And so far, that bet seems to be paying off. So when I hear those numbers, my question is, as a parent whose kid is looking at colleges, is there any way for me to find out? Because spending 4000 versus 150000 those are in two entirely different products. So I, I want to know, is there a way for me to know how much the school is spending per student? That's a good question. So she got that data from public records. So I do think that there are ways to find out how much individual institutions are spending. But what she found was this really 
clear, linear relationship between how selective an institution is and how much they spend. So there are some outliers, but for the most part, the most selective institutions are the ones that are spending the most. So unfortunately, all of this data sort of pushes us in the way that anxious parents are already being pushed, which is go to the most selective institution that will admit you. And again, on a on an individual basis, I think there are lots of different fits. I think if your institution is spending, you know, 50000 or 80000 or or $100,000 per student, you may not notice a whole a huge difference in the education that yours you receive or that your student receives, but I do think on, on again in the aggregate the fact that you know community colleges students are getting so little invested in them and Ivy League students are getting so much invested them in them is an indication of these deeper inequities that we all need to be concerned about. So it's probably impossible to have this conversation without touching on the college scandal. So uh, we're just going to put it out there. Um, So is there a huge difference, in your opinion, between the criminals and the people who buy a building? And obviously, clearly, one is illegal. (laughs) But share a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So yeah, so I do think that there's a big difference. I, I do think that breaking the law is breaking the law. But there's no question when when so I, I went back and read through the wiretaps that the FBI did with with uh, these parents who were involved in the scandal as they talked to Rick Singer, this crooked college coach. And what was so striking in reading these transcripts, as he was, you know, telling them they had to send in photos of their kids so that he could, he could, you know, Photoshop their faces onto the bodies of place kickers and and water polo players and ridiculous things like that, was that they weren't, they didn't sound like they were in the middle of a criminal conspiracy. They sounded just like the the sort of affluent, anxious parents who I had talked to all over the country. I feel like they, those parents were just the most extreme and crazy and illegal expression of a a kind of anxiety and a kind of overkill that I think a lot of parents experience, even when they're staying purely on the right side of the law. I think what what happens with parents is that they see that the system is unfair. And even if you can kind of see on the whole that the system is benefiting people like you, if you're a well-off parent and you say, well, yeah, I I get that I've got advantages that other, other families don't. The fact that it's unfair, the fact that you you know there are you know neighbors and friends and classmates who are getting even more advantages that you, than you and your child are getting, it makes you act a little bit crazy. You just start thinking, well, there are no rules. It's not a meritocracy. It's not a fair system. So there are no restrictions on what I should do and, in fact, need to do in order to get my child admitted. So do you think, just looking at the college scandal now, you know, a few months later, what do you think the fallout will be from that? Is that ultimately good for everything that's going on and just um, heightened awareness? You know, do you think like a a market correction, if you will? (laughs) I I don't know. It's a great question. And I think about it a lot. And I think it remains to be seen. I think there is a, you know, my, in my more hopeful moments, I Mm -hmm. I hope that, yeah, it, it, when we kind of recognize ourselves in those parents who are going over the top and now are going to jail, I hope it makes us think, yeah, this system is crazy. And the anxiety that we as parents are feeling about about our kids and about the, the specific college that they go to is way too intense. And we all need to dial it down a little bit. In my more 
pessimistic moments. What I worry about is that parents who are, you know, not crossing the line into illegality, but are doing everything but are, you know, sending their kids to SAT tutors starting in sophomore year and are obsessing about college visits and essays and everything else, that they're like, well, at least I'm not like those other parents, right? Like <laughs> there are other parents who are crazier than me and who are breaking the law. So I must be okay if, I'm, if I haven't crossed that <laughs> line. It's like what line. we say at your teen, every, everybody knows a helicopter parent. No one is one. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so perfect segue to the next question, which, first of all, I want to really tell everybody who's who's at this point in parenting that The Years That Matter Most is an unbelievable read. It's just interesting in and of itself, just as a great book to read, and also unearths so much information that we never knew before. It's really, a, it's a gift to us, Paul. Thank you. Um, but I want to segue into the question kind of of the the very close to the line of what we're doing in spending that's legal. So we're on the we're on the right side of the law, but you bring up in your book this SAT tutor from Washington who charges $400 an hour and yields great results with his students and his philosophy is very different than other tutors. So my question to you and if you could tell a little bit more of the story cuz I'm leaving out a lot, but also when we hear that story, what do you hope parents do in response to that? So this SAT tutor who who sort of let me shadow him over the course of a couple of years and watch watch as he uh, worked with these mostly affluent students charges four hundred dollars an hour. His name's Ned Johnson. He runs his own company called Prep Matters in Washington D.C. That is the biggest, most successful test prep company in Washington D.C. And he bills more hours than anybody else at his company. And so when I first started sitting in on his tutoring sessions, I assumed that for $400 an hour, he was just going to be, you know, cramming as much information about algebra and reading comprehension strategies as he possibly could into the brains of his students. But in fact, they rarely talked about that academic material at all. And they spent a lot more time talking about anxiety and stress. Ned's theory is that the sort of students who end up in his tutoring center are coming from, you know, affluent families with highly educated parents. What is holding them back from success on the test is not a lack of knowledge. It is a lack of emotion. It's a lack of motivation. It is uh, having too much stress, too much anxiety. And so a lot of what he does is tries to uh, help them think about the test differently, frame the test differently. He talks a lot about sleep, a lot about exercise, a lot about diet. But he also tries to persuade them that this test is is not as serious as they think that it is. I think the SAT and the ACT, you know, they're, they're certainly challenging tests, but we make them more challenging by persuading our students that they are a measure not just of a certain type of academic ability, but of our, our self-worth as people, you know, whether we really deserve to go to a great institution, whether we deserve, you know, our place in the world, our place in our family. And that stress Ned, I think, has seen in his daily practice, but also, you know, you can see it in the research about stress physiology and stress psychology. When students get stressed out like that, they don't perform better, they perform worse. And so uh, Ned's practice is to help students understand that this test is just, you know, this this tricky, goofy exam that's made up by some, you know, some teachers in a in a uh, office somewhere to try to trick them, and that if they can outsmart those test makers, they will do well. And, and that is not because they're smarter; it's because they're craftier. And so once he sort of turns turns it into a game like that, not only do students understand the test better and do better in that sort of straightforward way. 
but they also change their psychology about the test. They start feeling more like like they're they're playing a game and that reduces their stress and that improves their performance. So to answer the second part of your question, which is sort of how do we think about the fact that Ned for $400 an hour is improving the outcomes for these affluent students to such a great degree. I feel like, you know, as a parent myself uh, with kids who are still a few years away from college, but not that far, I have two conflicting feelings. I mean, one is like, where am I going to find my own Ned and how am I going to come up with $400 an hour to pay him? Because it really is effective. But the second thing is that stress that his students were under was really striking. You know, the, they were spending a ton of their adolescence sitting here in this, you know, office park taking stupid test after stupid test, obsessing and worrying about this test. Despite uh, Ned's best efforts to calm them down, they were mostly pretty stressed out. And that just feels like a bad way to spend your adolescence. And it also struck me, you know, that the, here are these kids who are, you know, like so many members of their generation, really idealistic and they care about social justice and equity. Uh, they're really thinking big thoughts about, you know, gun violence and and racial discrimination and climate change. And then at you know age 15 or 16, we suddenly plunge them into this system that is manifestly unfair and tell them, you know, to just fight for every possible advantage that they have, try to, you know, defeat their peers. It's the ultimate betrayal of that kind of idealism. And so I think there's a way to understand how effective that sort of investment is in the short term and also believe that it is not the right investment for any individual family or student in the long term. So it does kind of go against the earlier discussion about how much money each school spends per student and the fact that you are getting a very different product. They're inconsistent, right? It is. Oh, yeah. From a straight sort of cost-benefit analysis, it's all worth it. <laughs> it's like it is worth it to spend a ton of money to get your, your SAT score up there and get into the most exclusive school you can get into and have them spend more money on you. There's a reason that especially affluent families have been obsessing about these tests and about college admissions over the last couple of decades. But it has created this system that is definitely unfair and that also is creating even among the winners, even among the affluent kids who are boosting their SAT scores and getting into these places, you know, a lot of them are kind of miserable. Like when you look at the data on mental health among college students, anxiety and depression has doubled in just the last decade. And I think that has something to do with the amount of stress that we've put in this unfair system. I think students are really, really aware of how unfair the system is and really aware of their parents' anxiety about how they do. Individual families are going to make different individual choices. But I think that looking at this data and simply saying, well, you know, it's right to just compete as much as you can, to game the system as much as you can, I don't think that that is truly doing our best for our, our kids. So let's. So that's a good segue into the test optional movement. <laughs> and you talked about that in an interview uh, Sue and I watched about Trinity College. Will you tell us more about that and your thoughts yes. on test optional? We're you know going the, swinging the pendulum the other way. Yeah, so this is this is, I think in partly in response to the unfairness of those tests and the fact that they reflect family income more than they reflect anything else. In response to that, a lot of institutions have gone what they call test optional, meaning that they now no longer require students to submit their test scores when they apply. It's still a minority of American colleges, but it's a lot of liberal arts colleges, about half of the 
top 100 uh, liberal arts schools on the U.S. news list are now test optional. And just as I was reporting the book last year, the University of Chicago became the first highly selective research university to go test optional. So it remains to be seen whether this trend will continue. I hope so, because I think that anything that reduces the emphasis that people in admissions place on standardized tests is going to level the playing field. Because these test scores correlate so strongly with family income, any system that puts a lot of emphasis on test scores is going to make it easier for colleges to admit more rich kids and make it harder for them to admit more low-income students. And I want that playing field to be more level because I think it's going to be better for the country if we have a more equitable higher education system. I love that sentence. <laughs> Help us understand how U.S. News rankings fit into this problem. The U.S. News rankings are sort of a problem that there there is no solution to. <laughs> <laughs> they clearly, you know, so when you talk to admissions people, they all hate the rankings. <laughs> there was a poll that I cite where like 97% of, of admissions officers say that the U.S. News rankings, you know, generally make, make higher education a worse place. But they can't ignore them because parents pay attention to them, families pay attention to them. And there are studies that economists have done showing that if your college goes up, you know, one or two points, one or two places on the U.S. news rankings, it makes a difference in terms of how many applicants apply to your college next year and, and who those applicants are. And so colleges can't afford to ignore the list. And yet they know that the list pushes them toward behaviors that are not helping them and not helping their students. The list pushes uh, colleges toward emphasizing test scores. It makes it harder to, to save money as a college because the list is measuring how much you're spending on your students. So, you know, even if you don't think it's a good idea to build, you know, this next chemistry lab, you're going to build it because U.S. News is going to give you points for it and you don't see a way around that. So I don't know how to convince parents to stop paying so much attention to the U.S. News list. But until they do, until we do, it's going to continue to have this unfortunate role, unfortunately important role in the way that higher education functions. So I guess it sounds to me almost impossible to have the responsibility be on the parents. It sounds to me like if we're expecting the parents to be the driver of change, that it's unlikely to happen. Like I look at the system myself personally and think, so if I don't buy into the system, does that make any change? So what I'm wondering is, you mentioned DePaul as a real shining star of a university doing, doing exactly, I think, what you hope will happen. So how is that affecting DePaul? From where we live, more and more kids keep going there. And are, are, so is that model okay? Can schools survive? And if I guess you'd have to tell a little bit about DePaul. So there's two questions out. I want to I want to answer both of them. But so before I talk about DePaul, I I just want to talk about that 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 question of sort of can't what can any individual parent do to change the system? If we just think sort of the way I think the system trains us to think, which is to think selfishly and individually and competitively about college admissions, then yeah, we're going to continue to behave in ways that maybe benefit uh, us and our families and our kids in the short term, but that really hurt not only them but the system as a whole. The country as a whole in the medium and long term. And so 
there are lots of examples in American life where faced with that kind of decision, parents, families make uh, make a different decision and decide, no, we're, we're not just going to do the most immediate sort of short-term selfish thing. We're going to think a little bit more broadly. So I do think that there's the possibility for individual action to add up to an important collective public change. Your example of recycling, the reason that the example, I think, works to distinguish higher ed for me is that there is a system in place because I can have my, you know, my garbage picked up and already divided. Mm -hmm. There's a system in place. Where's the infrastructure that allows my decision to catch on and become a movement? So if I just say, I'm not going to be a person who takes advantage and you don't get, Mm -hmm. you don't Mm -hmm. get SAT tutoring, like where's the groundswell of support for that that actually does change something? It's a good question. I mean, you know, social change is hard and complicated and slow. But, I mean, you know, it's not like that. those systems of recycling were always there. They came about because consumers changed their habits and voters pushed governments to change what they did as well. And I think there is – I've never tried out this recycling <laughs> um, analogy before, and I'm not totally sure that it will I was that thinking that higher up. ed needs Greta. That was what I was sitting here thinking. <laughs> but, but just to push it a little bit further, I mean, I do feel like there is this way that – any sort of social change comes from a bunch of individual actions. And it's hard to lead the way. It's hard to be the first. But I think actually, you know, any parent who opts out of the paradigm of just, you know, fight for everything you've got and be the most competitive you can be, you're not on your own. There are lots of other parents who are already making that choice. And there's not, I, I mean, I think I think the, 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 the point you're making, and I think it's a really good one, is there's, it's not totally clear what you do, right? <laughs> like where, like it's clear what you do when it's time to cycle, you know, where to put the glass and where to put the plastic, right? But if you want to dial down the anxiety about higher education and push for a more level playing field, what what does that mean? Does it mean that you don't send your your kid to, to SAT tutoring? Does it mean you, you know, apply to community college and not to the Ivy League? I don't think it's clear, but I think there are lots of ways, there are lots of decisions that every parent, every family is making about higher education. And in lots of those moments, there are choices that are the the sort of more competitive, more selfish one, and there are choices that are are going to lead to a more level playing field. That's true, not only in terms of how you're applying, but it's true of what you do as an alumna or alumnus of one of these institutions. It's true, you know, in terms of how we vote. It's true in terms of how we contribute and donate to, to institutions. I do think that there are lots of levers that families and parents are able to pull. Okay, so we're going to continue the conversation with you offline about how we could start a movement based Great. on your book, just so that we wrap up to Paul, since I brought it up. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? DePaul in Chicago is an institution where I spent some time mostly because of a man who was the head of admissions there. He's actually moved on uh, this past summer to a different institution. But his name is John Bockenstadt. And he is, uh, I think, one of the smartest, not only smartest admissions leaders, but but smartest sort of analysts about admissions. He has a couple of blogs where he looks at all of the data about how higher education works and who goes where and who applies where. And he's... 
he I, I relied on his work a lot, and it's made him, I think, more thoughtful about how DePaul functioned when he was there. So DePaul, during the years that he was there, went test optional, and what he found was that going test optional didn't, you know, completely change the character of the university. There, most students still submit their test scores when they apply to DePaul, but there were a number of students who started applying without sending test scores. And they had fantastic records. And so they were admitted, or lots of them were admitted. And and what they found was that those students tended to be more likely to be female, to be low-income, first-generation Black and Latina students from Chicago, usually from Chicago public schools, which was a, a part of the population that, that had been really difficult for DePaul to attract and to admit. Once those students got to DePaul, they spent some time tracking their progress. They actually asked them for their test scores once they showed up, not to, you know, judge them, but for research purposes to see how they did. And they found, yeah, their their ACT scores were like five points lower on average than the average incoming DePaul freshman. But they performed just as well as every other DePaul student. They progressed to sophomore year at the same rate, their GPA was the same, and their six-year graduation rate was almost the same as well. So what going test optional did in DePaul's case was allowed them to admit a more equitable freshman class. There were still more well-off students than low-income students. It allowed them to pay attention to notice some students who otherwise would have been overlooked. And what they found is it didn't have any negative effect on how well academically DePaul did. That, to me, is a really important data point. That's excellent. All right, so our last question to wrap up. What do you think is the biggest myth about college admissions? I think the biggest myth is that the people who are sitting in those admissions offices are these sort of all-powerful demigods who are are just handing out acceptances and rejections and don't have any care in the world. My first couple of years of reporting, I was mostly talking to students. And so that's how I saw them. That's how how I think a lot of students and a lot of families see them, that they have all the power. And at that moment, when you're applying to colleges, they really do. But once I started spending time with the admissions people themselves, like John Bakkenstedt, and then I spent a year working closely with the admissions department at uh, Trinity College, a private four-year college in Hartford, Connecticut. I came to understand that admissions folks, especially at not the very top tier private four-year institutions, they're under enormous financial pressure right now. There, Many of those institutions are losing money. About 25% of them are now operating in the red, and there are lots of others that are close to that line. And so they really need to focus in their admissions on, on tuition dollars. They need to admit people who can pay pay their tuitions. And that has actually become more difficult than ever because there are a whole lot of things that have changed in the admissions process that actually give students, and particularly affluent students, more power than they have ever had before. Private institutions are discounting their tuition by huge amounts. The average tuition discount is now more than 50%, meaning those those huge uh, tuition prices that we see on, you know, on college websites are twice as high as what the average student is actually paying. But what's crazy about the system is that, you know, those tuition discounts are not evenly distributed. It's not the case that everyone is paying the same amount. 
the amount of tuition that students are paying is all over the map. And it is calculated according to these complex algorithms that are not about your academic ability. They're not even about your family's ability to pay. They're based on this calculation of what you are worth to the college and what the college is worth to you. And that that sort of automation, that that algorithm focus that admissions people now have has changed the nature and the process of admissions in ways that I think most families, most parents don't understand. And even many admissions officers don't truly understand it. The system has changed so quickly and the, the mathematics behind it is so complex that I think a lot of folks in the business are confused about exactly what's happening and how it's changing so quickly. Thank you so much, Paul. Really, thanks Thank so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Teen with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greenie. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.